Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with football legend and podcaster, Bernie Gozar. All right, let's get this started. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program... I'm joined by a two-time Pro Bowler, a national champion, and a Super Bowl champion. He's got a podcast as well, the Bernie Kosar Show with Hanford Dixon. Ladies and gentlemen, Bernie Kosar. Bernie, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, Brett, good to be with you. Thank you for that awesome introduction. And I'm honored <laughs> to be on your podcast. And as a dog pound Cleveland Brown, you got some of my dogs barking in the background. Very cool. Very cool. Which is more difficult, Bernie, uh, winning a national championship or enduring 12 years in the NFL? You know what? Great question. As, as, as I, and I haven't been asked that before. You know, I, I thought you were going to ask winning a national championship or winning the Super Bowl. That's too easy. Ask, That's too yeah, easy. Yeah, that is too easy. And, and, and from coming from an awesome ex-athlete who absolutely is, needs to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, um, I, I should expect nothing less than a cool answer, like a question like that. And as I think about it, um, you know, I'm so proud of the University of Miami and winning that national championship and getting me that start. And, you know, we're, I'm talking to here from Northeastern Ohio. Um, you know, as before we started on there, we were talking about that tragic train derailment uh, right outside my hometown in East Palestine. And, and um, you think of the health and wellness of the people and what's going on in that community. And I, as an ex-athlete, I'm 59. Brett, I know you're like early 50s. I think you're 53 and stuff. Yeah. Um, winning those championships is so awesome. We know how, what a hard mountain that is to climb. And as I'm talking about East Palestine and the health and wellness of the people there and your question of how hard it was, what's harder, the national championship or 12 years in the NFL as a guy with 40 surgeries, 80 broken bones, 100 concussions, 14 seizures. Heck, the last uh, two seizures, I was in a coma for 72 and 96 hours. Um, the pain and physical toll that, that we go through on that, I actually think that's – I'm giving you a long-winded answer that probably surviving 12 years in the NFL and then being able – um, there's a scary stat um, that I came across where it said if you played um, six, seven years in the NFL, that your life expectancy is 57 years old. So maybe the toughest thing is to have finished those 12 years and to be up here now and be 59 years old. And I was diagnosed four years ago with five years left of cognitive brain function, Brett. I would not have been able. I, I couldn't. One, I didn't know what cognitive meant back then. I couldn't articulate, enunciate, really communicate any multiple syllable words. At this point in an interview, a podcast, you wouldn't have been able to understand me. So to be able to um, um, fit, figure out some health and wellness, it, it's been incredibly uh, uh, um, physical from that perspective. Yeah, that's pretty odd. You have been through a lot. You know, you did broke. Uh, in 2012 broke in 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 a uh, 30 for 30 with ESPN you've been through a lot uh, the CTE is a big thing uh, in the NFL you know I, I think 
I, I know for myself, the games change all the, the games change and not only the NFL, but MLB uh, uh, across the board as far as how serious we take these head injuries. Now, I remember when I was playing, I get hit in the head. I got hit in the head my first time ever facing uh, Roger Clemens it was my second or third day in the big leagues. And I got hit in the head a lot. I fell down a lot. I probably had a lot of concussions that I didn't even know about. But as you can right, probably, back then, we back then it wasn't stars, seeing right. stars. It was cool. That's right. a subconcussive blow. Yeah. Right. And, and the protocols now they're so much more stingy. I'm seeing it in major league baseball. I mean, if there's even a chance it's, they don't take a chance anymore. And, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, in, in hey, the hey, Brett, uh, Brett, I'm sorry. As I'm, um, and I know it's your podcast. So the 1992 Roger Clemens hitting you in the, in the head, right? Um, that type of concussion back then in in the late um, late eighties, early nineties, and you, you and I'm going to make it. This is somewhat of a joke, but it really is um, um, a serious uh, a serious factual comment. Is um, the technology and the concussion protocols and the concussion tests are so much more stringent today and much much better for for the for the players and stuff. Heck. In football back then, I don't know about you baseball guys, but we used to, our concussion evaluation, I don't know, what, was the finger test. Yeah. So the trainer would come out, and before the season, you were coached up to say, hey, if you get dinged, if you get your bell rung, um, we, if you think you got a concussion, you're going to be evaluated, and you're going to get the finger test, and it's never going to be one because that's too easy. And we're never going to give you three because you may miss that. So it's always <laughs> we're going to stick up two. So you put up the every time you know it's going to be two. And unfortunately, I was getting hit so much that um, um, a, a couple times towards the end of my career, uh, the trainers wouldn't have been hadn't even gone out there, hadn't got the words out of their mouth, and they say how many how many fingers are up? I go two, and then they hadn't put them up. And they go, yeah, you're lying, you're making it up. And I'm like, no, I'm not making them up. I'm Nostradamus. I could see the future. I knew what you were going to do. I can't possibly be concussed with something like that going on. And well, that's that's long term detrimental to some of the things that um, at least myself have had to overcome over the years. And you had mentioned in passing um, um, the two, 20, 2012 30-30 uh, broke. Um, there's a definitely with the CT not using that as an excuse, but that is absolutely something that happens with us us guys uh, after the fact. That's made it really financially challenging to do. But from a personal standpoint, um, at 59, I'm, I'm I think open and able to recognize some of the issues when some of that was happening 10 and 15 years ago um we're blessed a little bit in 2023 to where as men we're able to talk about the concussion issues we're able to talk about cte we're able to talk about probably the the wrong approach that the treatments they had for us back then but man back 10 15 years ago it wasn't common knowledge it wasn't cool to say i had a concussion we didn't know the, as much of the traumatic issues that we were going heck even myself, knowing I was going through it, um, you, didn't, you didn't really realize um, all the, the real science that was genuinely, genuinely hurting you back then. Now, today, 10 to 15 years later, you're able to, to at least talk about this as a society and as men 
and being able to not have to kind of put on an act that you had these issues. And unfortunately for myself, not to make this podcast all about this, but again, if we'd have been doing this five years ago, I was such a train wreck to the inability to even understand what I was talking about and to understand now to be able to sit here and to be able to do this, to be able to show some other guys kind of a pathway to come out the other side and to at least cope with the traumatic brain injuries um, that that a lot of us ex-players are dealing with. Yeah, and it's amazing. I mean, you came up in, in 85. I came up, as you mentioned, in 92. And you're right. Our mentality back then, you, you know, it's it, it is kind of funny that the two finger thing, but our mentality and, and definitely in baseball and I'm sure in football it was very similar was you were a tough guy and it, you don't care what happens to you on the field. Your obligation to your team, to your teammates is to get your ass back out on the field for the next play. I remember, you know, it was kind of a badge of honor. It was Absolutely. Because I, I, you know, I played a lot of games where I probably shouldn't have been playing and not for for head injuries, but for other things. But back then it was, no, you got to show these guys that you're going to get back out there and a little Nick and, you know, baseball and football is apples and oranges. I, I <laughs> years no, ago, but, but, but right, you got hit in the head by a Roger Clemens, hundred mile an hour fastball. You're so conditioned. We were so conditioned. You absolutely were conducted concussed you absolutely continued playing the next couple days probably with that yet you had that issue yet back then we didn't even think we didn't even know we were hurting we didn't know any better and then even if we did to your point um you don't want to let your partner down the other eight guys out on the field with you especially your brother that you're going to be turning the double play with with the second uh, second base the shortstop and stuff i mean that was that was like the 11th commandment that uh that moses brought down from the top (laughs) of the hill man that was gonna not let my brothers next to me down yeah you're right and and uh because there was whispers of guys in our generation uh, that were soft, that would come out of the game for for little injuries. And it was kind of known and it was whispered around the clubhouse like, oh, you know, he'll he'll he, he'll he gets he catches a cold and he won't play tomorrow. And that wasn't a good reputation to have in those clubhouses. Wow, Brett, look how you just bounced up. And again, it's the morning for both of us. And and you bounced up with a little adrenaline there at 53 here at me at 59. I got goosebumps here thinking about that. Here, even as an old man right now, in the late third quarter, early fourth quarter of my life, <laughs> I would cringe if, uh, if you if, to be in that locker room. Never did we want to be that person who was considered soft. Uh, we couldn't be counted on to be out there with our guys. And you, you never had that reputation. I proudly could sit here and 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 know that you didn't want to have that whispered about you ever in the locker room. I mean, that's that's something that even to this day, you could see for the for the listeners, viewers out there, how elevated we get and how much pride, bluntly what pride we take in being able to see, sit here today talking to each other, um, surviving that and proudly looking back and saying that we were able to actually play pretty good while we were um, less than ideal. You know, it's... Um... Years ago, when I was in Seattle and Matt Harbaugh was the was the quarterback for the Seahawks, uh, 
we were up for an award or something. And you know, this is the first time I met Matt since then, Matt's been on the podcast. Uh, <clears throat> but we were talking about the physicality of football and, and baseball and which was tougher. And, you know, it was fun. We were, we were sitting there having beers and we were debating, which is tougher to do. I watched the NFL and I just think as a baseball player, you know, I consider myself pretty tough, but I watched the guys and that the hits and, and the speed and it, my argument to Matt was we were talking about the mental side of the game. And I said, well, what you do in the NFL, Matt, is one day a week you get the crap knocked out of you. I said, I just get I just get little guys at my heels every single day for 162 games and it wears on you. So I, it, it was a fun conversation. It, nobody won the conversation. I mean, there's arguments on both sides. But I do watch football and the hits you guys take, without a doubt, the physicality. Me as a second baseman, I'm bouncing around. I'm diving. I'm jamming my shoulder, my knees. And it's just an everyday thing. It's it's not, no, we got to rest tomorrow. Oh, I've got to play tomorrow and I got to play the next day and the next day and the next day. So there's pros and cons to both sports but as a as a non-football player i do watch the nfl especially today with the size and the speed i know there's been a lot of new rules put into play to protect the players and once again guys from your generation will go oh it's a lot easier now than when i played um but i couldn't imagine like i said as never a guy that's gone across the middle never dropped back and got gotten blindsided uh, and hit the turf and, and like you said see stars it's amazing to me what what the nfl players do go through for bernie kozar when a hey, when, well yeah. breath to breath to the to that kind of statements and stuff first both of us both sports have serious short term intermediate and long-term serious ramifications um, to the health. So whether it's, I'm not sure anybody really wins from the health perspective, because both of the scenarios of, of uh, is, is tough on the body from, from that perspective. Um, but in the spirit of levity and kind of talking about some of the health and stuff, as you were talking about that once a week thing, and, and not to be on my uh, soapbox here, homily for the younger listeners out there, um, I'm a big flag football uh, proponent early on. You don't need to be banging heads super early um, in, in uh, third, fourth, fifth grade. Okay, I didn't start playing football till seventh, eighth grade, and, and I still ended up making it to the NFL. Um, there are so many issues that, that um, come up with, um, with, with that that's you don't necessarily need to, um, you know, take on take on from that uh, that early perspective. Yeah, that and that was my question. That was my next question. It was when people when parents come up to Bernie Kosar and say, what do you think about my kids playing football? What's what's your answer right away? Obviously, you you condoned the flag at an early age. But what, so what's, absolutely, your, what's your answer? So I absolutely love in sports. And it's a tricky thing now with the, how society's changed. Like, I'm not saying this is right, but it absolutely helped me that I was hit, paddled in school, hit by my parents when I was out of line, uh, massively yelled at and hit by my coaches and stuff. And it so helped me. It so motivated me. Um, it kept me in line as a kid. The structure and discipline that sports and going to practice and being on time and even heck today for the podcast. I mean, I, I, 
it's so ingrained in you to actually be early. I love that discipline and structure uh, that it teaches you. But it's somewhat at too early an age. Um, it absolutely, I think, takes away and is, is too detrimental from a psychological standpoint and then from a growth standpoint. You don't you don't need to be taken taking those types of hits at that type of age. And, and, and people will say, well, you, you did some things crazy when you were, when you were younger. Yeah. And, and I paid the price with some of the things that have happened through my life that we were talking about. And that I'm trying to deal with now from the health and wellness side of it. Heck for the younger listeners out there, I was groomed. I, um, I do this a lot for people out there. You matter because, um, Self-confidence, self-esteem um, is important to everybody, especially kids. I went to the University of Miami, um, where we are the U, and I say you matter. And it's, it started from there, but it branches out to everybody now. And some of the things I learned at the U from the great Jim Kelly, Hall of Fame quarterback and stuff, but we audible, we talk a lot, like I'm talking too much here. I didn't wear a mouthpiece. Brad, God, was that stupid. So now hockey players don't have their front teeth. Um, NFL quarterbacks, me and Jim Kelly, we don't have our back teeth because I didn't wear a mouthpiece. So the, uh, in terms of the head trauma, the extra concussions, probably the seizures that, that, that happened to me, right, right, Brett, actually right around your age and stuff in my early 50s and stuff, is something that um, – Absolutely, was the ramifications of playing too early and and not understanding how to take care of your um, your physical health at that point. That's funny you mentioned the the mouthpiece. That's something. Yeah, some guys are like, "Why do I need a mouthpiece?" I didn't wear a cup until my third year in the big leagues, and it didn't happen in a game. But uh, during batting practice one day, I was taking ground balls and I took one. And oh. and I ran in, and it was one of the worst pains I've ever had. And I ran in, and I wear a cup. I wore a cup for the rest of my career. But no, I understand what you're talking about. Hey, oh gosh! Hey, so I I, I want to keep this. I want to keep this podcast PG rated and stuff. But to the, your cup, your cup, and to your equipment, quarterbacks in the '80s. Okay, at times that was a big question: Do you wear them? Do you not wear them? At times, uh, I didn't wear them. Everything went at the bottom of the huddle in the 80s, what they did to the quarterbacks, the punching, the grabbing for the ball, the grabbing for personal parts of your anatomy and stuff. I could massively digress into an R-rated show right now, okay? (laughs) And I talk about actually after some games to some of the things that would happen in the bottom of the pile. And it's going to seem like I'm embellishing on the story or that I'm back drinking again, but they have bite marks down by your Johnson. Okay. From right. guys actually punching and biting you down there and having teeth marks. Okay. After a game. So I, I recommend the from the eighties actually wearing the cup, wear the cup, <laughs> wear the cup, uh, big, Obviously, I don't I don't know how much he is, but he was a big part of your career starting at the University of Miami. I uh, was also your your coach in for the Dolphins and for the Dallas Cowboys. Three times you were with Jimmy Johnson. Uh, the only guy I was with multiple times was a Lou Pinella. I was with Lou Pinella as a young player. Uh, my first time around the block and man, 
did we it, it, and it's well documented on this podcast me and lou when i was a kid i mean we went round and round it did not see eye to eye uh <laughs> second time around in seattle i was with lou um to this day one of my favorite men in the world and we're as tight as you possibly could be. And, uh, just a special man in my life, Jimmy Johnson, three times. What, what's your relationship? Wow. Brett, thanks for sharing that story. I had known that you had been with coach Lou a couple of times and hadn't pieced that story together and hadn't heard it like that. And as you were saying that, I was, and we were talking about a cup in the previous question. I was reaching into my pocket, not to check my cup, okay, but to grab my Super Bowl ring that I got from Jimmy Johnson with the Cowboys. And I am so proud, and thanks for sharing your part of the story and asking that question, because I'm so proud to have been the only player to have played with Jimmy Johnson at the University of Miami, um, um, at the Dallas Cowboys, and then finished uh, my career with him at the at the Miami Dolphins. And as you're saying that, to in youth, in youth, we were all fiery, and you and me didn't have these long careers. And you, we're we're both sitting here coolly, calmly, maturely, and professionally today. But I'll at least say for myself, at times in my youth, I was a little lot more fiery and not as professional. And your story about you and Lou kind of going at it early in your career, the first go round, and then coming around the second go round, and now he's one of your big best brothers in the world and one of your closest people. Man, I could actually echo almost a, that same type of scenario. Um, we won the national championship in 1983. Coach Howard Stellenberger was our, our head coach. Um, God bless him. Love him so much. My father in football coached the offensive coordinator for uh, the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins and the great Don Shula. I'm so awesome to have also been with the great Don Shula as one of my coaches. I've been so blessed with so many awesome coaches. But um, the business of sports, when we won the national championship, Brett, I hadn't understood it. I still really thought it was a game and we did it for fun especially in college. But back then we win a national championship. Coach Stellenberger did not get a, another contract, didn't get renewed, didn't get extended and that. So he left to go to the USFL. Jimmy Johnson came in in an incredibly challenging situation with a, uh, a University of Miami championship team. He didn't get spring practice. He came in in like middle of June. This training camp was uh, was going to start eight weeks later. I mean, that's almost an unfathomable to think a head coach is going to get a staff together, put a system together in those in, in, in six to eight weeks and then compete for a national championship. He came in. We had a rocky first year. We didn't maximize the talent like we wanted to. And I can say somewhat of a somewhat similar story. I think Jimmy would somewhat say that we had a good relationship, but it was a little rocky. We we butted heads at times. And then, man, the second go-round was so beautiful in Dallas. And, and then having a third dance with him at the Miami Dolphins. And to this day, I was so proud to watch him go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I could echo and, uh, and almost reiterate, yeah, the same type of relationship that yeah, you have with, with, with Coach Lou. 
Yeah, Lou early. He he was testing me, you know. He wanted to know I was this young, spry, uh, not arrogant, but man, I, I was pretty I was pretty sure of myself. And and he was trying to teach me lessons and I would resist. And and then I'd look as we all, as we all mature, we get older, we become veteran players. We look back and go, I see what he was trying to do back then. And we we all learned lessons, but it was a neat uh, thing for my, myself and Lou when we were when when we got back together in 2001 like I said it, it was so cool and to this day one of my just my favorite men in the world um, you talk about the U- University of Miami the U and and you hear a lot about it recently I've had I had Warren Sapp on the program and he talked about playing at Miami how did a kid from Cleveland Bernie Kozar end up at the U and I want to know this I know back then it was that was the place to be. That was the that was the party. That was the concert. I went to USC. Uh, great school. Great football. Uh, right on. Yeah. Great football. My daughter graduated. My my youngest daughter graduated architecture school from the Trojans. So fight on there. Yeah. Different, though, as far as. Yeah. Great history. A lot of great teams, national championships. You know, to this day, you go to USC, it's all about the football team. For us as students, I'd go to the football game, but it was, okay, halftime, where are we going to the party on Fraternity Row? Uh, for me, the first time I saw a real college football game where I looked around and it was different, we took a trip to uh, Notre Dame. And it was Notre Dame SC, and that's still a big rivalry to this day. And I remember sitting in the stadium in Notre Dame and those on those bench seats, uh, and and none of the students left at halftime. It was that was serious business. And on Saturday, you stay for the whole game because that's what everything in that area is about. SC a little bit different, laid back Southern California, University of Miami. What was so special about those times? What what made you uh, University of Miami football what well, it is? You know, we were talking about Coach Johnson and the Dolphins, and I was thinking about um, our mutual friend Todd Nielsen and how we got together yes. for doing this podcast of the Dolphins. So Todd, Todd will love that. He'll love that shout out, Todd. Yeah, we're gonna give him a shout out, man. He gave, we were, I was stomping around the facility there uh, last week, so love that, but. Again, Coach Snellenberger recruited me, and he had the University of Miami um, and the city of Miami is an awesome city. But in the early 80s, uh, it wasn't the Miami that we know today. Uh, The Mario boat lift happened with Fidel Castro in Cuba. So he had um, let a lot of people from his prisons had come out to Miami. So there was a lot of action. Um, The movie... uh, Scarface came out. I say movie. That wasn't a movie. It was a documentary for the time frame down there. There was violence, riots in the streets down by the University of Miami. So it, um, um, but I was, uh, and I hadn't really thought about going there as much. But then as a 17 year old, I've always been tall, slow, and skinny. And in the early and mid 80s, um, late 70s, people didn't throw the ball much in the midwest it wasn't the big it wasn't the wishbone as the old days but it wasn't a throwing conference so the only people throwing was the west coast uh the pack 10 at the time and uh, the people in the south so the three florida schools recruited me miami florida and florida state and actually my first time i got in airplane in youngstown ohio i went to university of florida to see um 
um, Mike Shanahan was the offensive coordinator at, at, uh, at the Gators. So to go down to Miami, though, I met Howard Snellenberger, and he said, we have the state of Miami. From Orlando down, I get every player on the team except our quarterback, and I want a drop-back throwing quarterback to execute my pro-style offense, and I want it to be you. And I'm still to this day, God bless Coach Stellenberger and coaching heaven, but I'm still afraid of that man. So I still listen to everything he says. And I, I so bought in and believed in his vision of, of me as a quarterback and me being able to lead his team and, and, and that pro-style offense. I just I was so enthralled in, in, in by it, and I, I couldn't wait to go and sign up and go there. There wasn't the internet back then, Brett, so I thought I was his favorite son and the chosen one to go. All of a sudden, I get there, and there's the great Jim Kelly, and then Mark Richt, who was backing him up, who went on to, to be a fantastic head coach at the University of Georgia and back at the U. And then there's this young freshman alongside me named Vinny Testaverde, who was the massive, athletic, awesome guy. So here I am thinking I'm the cool guy, going to slide right in there. And I'm fourth and fifth on the depth chart, looking like, looking like uh, I made the fatal mistake of, uh, of my life, Brett. And it's actually, I want to kind of go down this path because it's one of the great kind of coaching and points and how sports kind of also gives you life lessons. So here I am, 17, 18 years old. I think I'm going to be the quarterback of the University of Miami. Now I get down there and I see I, I'm a scrub. I'm fifth on the depth chart. I have zero <laughs> chance of playing, bro. Like so, I'm like, and then I see you know I'm running my five 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 forty. I'm bench pressing a buck eighty five. It's caving my chest in. Then you got Jim Kelly out there. You got Vinny Testaverde chucking up three twenty five, running a four six. I mean, he looks like Adonis. And I'm th throwing sidearm and, and, and slowing that. So I go, man, I'm, I'm screwed. I got to go to coach. I'm going to have to transfer to go to a, 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 a smaller school so that I get a chance to play and stuff. And uh, I go to coach. I go, it doesn't look good to me. And coach goes, um, yeah, you're right. It doesn't, which is not what you want to hear as a young athlete and stuff. But he goes, that he goes that anything in life that's great, everybody wants it. He goes, and if you run from a challenge now, you're going to run your whole life. And I promise you, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And it's not going to be a, a, a big statistical chance, but you're going to get a chance. And he goes, anything in life that's great, everybody wants it. Everybody wants to be a millionaire. It's not easy. Everybody wants to be the quarterback. It's not easy. So you're going to have to compete now. So now he goes, if you run from a challenge now, he goes, and you go home to mommy, he goes, they're going to, you're going to be told you're okay. He goes, any time in life that something's good and it gets tough, you'll run the whole rest of your life. He goes, it's better to go for it now. If you give it everything you got and win, you got it. But if you go for it now and you fail, it's okay. Because you could, he goes, you don't want to be an old man like me and die from within. It's better to go for it, do your best and fail. So, you know, as opposed to have that uncertainty for the next 50 years of your life. And that type of advice I tell the younger kids now is, you know, when you have your chances, don't run from a challenge, embrace it. 
and failure. If you did your best, at least you know, so you could feel good about yourself. But the the biggest fear and the biggest thing that could eat and kill you from within is that uncertainty of not knowing what could have been. Yeah, the unfinished business. Um, and you did. You took advantage in 83 as a freshman, I think a redshirt freshman. You won a national championship, beat Nebraska. You're an All-American in 84. Supplemental first-round pick for the Browns. Before we get off the college topic, I want one, one quick question. The NIL, name image likeness that now has been brought into the college game. Wasn't there for you, wasn't there for me. Um, Touch on a little bit what you think. How much money would you have made at that time at the University of Miami if there was a name image likeness program in place? So I, there's no question you would have made a ton. OK, and, I, and there's no question it's changing the game. So the people who say, hey, I don't want the game to change. I love the way the old game was. You know, I did. I do like it like that. I do like that. The guy stayed. I liked knowing the guys. I liked more of the continuity and consistency. But that's just me being selfish and us fans being selfish. I've seen so many young kids. Like, yeah, we're talking about you and me. God, I, you're having a you had a Hall of Fame career. You're going to be in the Hall of Fame. You got double-digit years in the league. I had double-digit years in the league. We're the, we're the minority. Um, I have so and that University of Miami team I played on, and in that era, that University of Miami team, we had an inordinate, actually the most guys from our college went on to the NFL and played and got an opportunity to make money, and God bless us for that. But I still know so many of my other brothers on the team that didn't get anything, that didn't go on to the NFL, um, I know so many more high school and college kids that didn't get onto the NFL and then had all these injuries and had all and they're dealing with the same ramifications of the issues from a health perspective and then from a, um, a psychological perspective and from the actual physical perspective. So I, I like that the kids now at least have that opportunity because I saw a lot of guys who said in college, I'm going to hold on to that dream of being in the pros. And that got them to um, enjoy the college experience and take it, try to do the best they could with it. But when they were 25, 26, and they realized, heck, I didn't make it to uh, pro football and that I can't go back to college and I'm kind of lost in that in-between stage, um, and they didn't make any money out of it, they tend to then um, almost harbor resentment inside and, and, and get really almost counterproductive and, then, and angry. And that anger isn't productive, and they, they, they end up kind of being lost, and I feel for that type guy. So now, if they and, and they almost create an animosity towards their school and towards people. So if this NIL stuff gives people an excuse, a chance maybe to help their families and then maybe to take away excuses for um, future failures and if they're able uh, to plant some seeds uh, for their future success and for their family's future success, because we, we harbor, or at least me, I think about guys like me and you who made it and and had our opportunities but i i, I bet you you could name a, quite a few guys 
who didn't make it as much, who could have used could have used some of that supplemental income or some income to plant some seeds and start their college career or their pro career um, or professional career post playing um, while they were in school. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, there's the, there's the dog pound right there's there. There's our dogs. They chiming in on that. 85 to 93. You're obviously Cleveland Browns. Uh, Art Modell was, was the owner at the time. Um, I go on the radio quite a bit in Cleveland. Uh, you know, usually to talk about the, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to be correct here. The guardians. guardians. I still, I still have a tough time. Well, it's saying. okay. Between your dad, between your dad and brother, you know, they were technically Indians. That's know? right. That's right. Yeah. But, um, you know, I go on there quite a bit. What is the huge love affair? Cleveland Browns never won uh, a Super Bowl title. What is the huge love affair with the Browns in that city? Cause it's unbelievable. Yeah, you know the 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 passion, uh, the work ethic, the the blue collar. You know, Northeast Ohio is it's a manufacturing town. You know, from Youngstown, Ohio. Um, again, we're we're kind of lower demographic steel workers in our family. And in the seventies, in the fifties and sixties, the steel mills were booming. It was an awesome economy. In the seventies, it wasn't, and the steel mills were closing and. And we did not have jobs. And it was a tough kind of resilient, um, um, competitive environment. It's almost like what I'm going to be doing today here in East Palestine uh, with, with the people here with this tr- terrible chemical uh, train derailment stuff. Um, you know, how uh, how we all bond together and how we compete um, and how we have internal hope of, I think, what the future brings to us. Um, is one thing um, on top of, you know, the history of football really being started here in Northeast Ohio and, and Canton, Maslin, Akron area, the great Paul Brown, um, what Paul Brown means to the NFL, what he means to Northeast Ohio, him starting the Cleveland Browns um, back in an era where um, TV wasn't as predominant and there weren't as many teams I mean, Cleveland in this area um, and the Browns and, and the dominance that that we had really dating myself and showing my age uh, to, to your listeners out there to the to the championships of Paul Brown and Otto Graham and Marion Motley, Lou Groza in the 50s and then to the great Jim Brown and in, in, in 63 and stuff. Those, that was that was the kind of the era and the formation of football in the cradle of football. And, and with the, the uh, kind of the area and the, the economy um, and the manufacturing um, being so challenged over the last few decades here, sports is kind of our escape and sports is our kind of our way of entertainment and, and the, the eternal love of wanting to win and wanting to see our team, uh, when it's it's always there, and it's almost kind of an escape from sometimes the um, um, the tough times that we're having in our personal lives, and and then actually, Brett, one of the kind of cool kind of cool comments I, I got the other uh, other day from um, uh, from a older mother uh, grandmother now, and she goes, God, you're so happy on Sundays back when he played in the '80s because. Um, everybody to come over, all the families, all the good Italian families come and cook their pasta and you have 
uncles, aunts, grandmas, and grandpas over. And all he goes, the whole family is happy because you guys won games. You're playing in the holidays. You're playing on New Year's Day. You're playing in the playoffs in January when the economy wasn't very good. The weather sucks. Excuse my language. At that time of the year, you don't have much to do. So, you know, on Sunday after church to have the positive times of looking forward to the Browns, and, and some of the teams that I played for, it was kind of cool to hear um, how you affected actual homes and, and families on, on that Sunday afternoon. And I actually think now that it, I, I say this as a joke, but we've really struggled this century to be only yeah. in the playoffs. Basically, two times this century is almost unfathomable that you um, you, know, you have that limited su- success like that. So I think people – really gravitate towards wanting to remember the old times and um, uh, with fond memories, those happy Sundays and um, in the family rooms with the families together. Yeah. My, you, you mentioned, it's funny. You say that the century Seattle Mariners, my Seattle Mariners, 2001 is the last time they were in the playoffs. They finally got back to the playoffs last year. It was a little 21 year uh, hiatus, but no, I, I feel you. And I know what you're talking about when, when, when it comes to that. Um, yeah, we're not trying to be, we're not trying to be smart asses and stuff, but it has been this century. It's just the way, it's just the way it is. 87 and 89. You're a pro bowler. You threw for over 3000 yards, four times, uh, Interesting point to me at 91 to 93, Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick was your coach. What was what's Bill really like? And what would, back then he wasn't considered Bill Belichick, the genius that he is now. Uh, what was he like back then when he when when it was the early 90s? So uh, thanks. It was funny on the Pro Bowl shout outs. Thank you. Um, the game has massively changed since back then. It was a free for all. I do not. Uh, I'm not proud of this. And for the youngsters out there, don't do this. But we held vendettas back in those days that carried over off the field. Very childish, very inappropriate. So quarterbacks would go out to the Pro Bowl, play on that concrete AstroTurf with defensive linemen, wanting to kill you. Like I had, I survived the whole football season. Okay, now to go try to have. Richard Dent and Mike Singletary and Lawrence Taylor and Leonard Marshall crush you again after you were hanging out in the beach in Hawaii <laughs> isn't exactly long-term planning, okay, um, far from that. But, you know, we were talking earlier in this show about, God, how blessed I've been to have had the awesome Howard Snellenberger, Jimmy Johnson, Don Shula, Marty Schottenheimer. I mean, I've had some awesome, massively great coaches. And then add the great Bill Belichick and stuff. At the beginning of his career, I had Nick Saban early at, on that staff as a defensive coordinator um, in that career. And guys like Bill and Nick at the beginning, before it was cool to call them geniuses, um, um, they were geniuses, and I knew that, and it was fun for me to work and talk with them. And I'm saying that even with Bill, who had cut me in 93 while we were in first place. Well, just like you had talked about with you and Lou, me and Jimmy, a little bit early. I mean, both of us are young guys. He was the youngest head, one of the youngest head coaches. Um, we're, we're starting to, you know, to establish a toughness and a culture. 
um, that is a little different than today. There was a lot of things that you needed to do in your locker room to be able to fight, fight through adversity and fight through issues to win games in the fourth quarter. So he was learning and he was setting his, his tempo and his team. Actually, the way I like to set my tempo and team, so we were in perfect harmony together. I love how he runs and structures the team. And one of the things in his work ethic and focus is, is in second to none. And for guys like us who are somewhat on the spectrum in terms of uh, OCD, over-obsessing over and, and focused on stuff, I, I, I love that in him. I, I joke that if um, – Thank God for football, because if it wasn't, he'd ha they'd have to be homeless because he's so meant for that attention and for that focus um, of, of football. What he was able to do, even back then, you could see the, the work ethic that I'm talking about. His knowledge of defense, his knowledge of special teams was unbelievable. He was trying to do everything back then, and offensively was the kind of the last part of the cog that he hadn't maybe put together. So a lot of the things that maybe me and him butted heads with offensively, um, he hadn't uh, maybe come to the, come to the um, knowledge base that he did when he got to new England. But by the time he got to new England in, in uh, 99 and stuff, 2000, um, I, he had had that issue leaving with the jets and he who resigned by writing um, um, it on a little card and saying, I resign as HC. And a lot of people are making fun of him. A lot of people are saying it's going to be a failure in New England. And a lot of press was calling me to kind of pile on him because I had uh, been released by him. And like I'm talking to you, his, his work ethic, his genius level attention to detail, not only from schematics, but from the X's and O's and uh, is is for sure, but how hand placements for DBs, foot placements for linemen, um, techniques to that level was there. Um, and I knew he'd be able to learn the offense. So when I was able to, when people were calling to talk about and kind of make fun of him, I actually said, I think it's it's going to be one of the most genius moves because he's going to, he was perfect on defense, perfect on special teams. And he's going to outsource and he'll learn the offense and, that offense that we debated back in the early 90s, he evolved and morphed that into what Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady did. And, um, it's, still, it's still working. Very cool. Uh, 93, you, wanna, you were a Super Bowl champion with the Dallas Cowboys, and you went to the Dolphins for the last three years of your career. Uh, it, this Stuff like this is really interesting to me, what I'm about to ask you. Uh, my sport – Baseball going through a lot of changes right now. They got a pitch clock. You know, I was kind of when asked, I'm kind of a wait and see guy now. You know, my first reaction is, hell no, we don't want a pitch clock. I've always said the one thing about baseball that separates itself is there's no timer. It ends when it ends. It It's just the way it is. Now, all of a sudden, they're trying this this pitch clock out. Uh, I guess as time goes on, there's going to be changes in the game. Some we're going to like, some we're not going to like. Some we're not going to like at the beginning, and then it grows on us. Like, well, that was a really good idea. I'm watching it right now in spring training. Um, last year, they they put in 
for the first time baseball because you know you've seen all the sign controversies and and all of a sudden for the first time on the catcher's mitt now they have a little computer that goes into an earpiece for the pitcher unheard of in my day you didn't have any earpieces anywhere near anything hey but, as, uh, a, as a guy as a guy who used to uh pay attention to signal stealers okay and a guy who used to watch i mean if you're a de- if you're a defensive coordinator standing over there in a big red jacket or a big off-color jacket than your other team, and you're going four, three, under, cover two. Right. That's your fault. That's your fault that I saw that. Okay. So, exactly. Yeah. That okay, my dad but- my, my dad always says that about catching. You know, when because as a as a player, when when I get to first base and I take my lead, I'm gonna peek in. If, if that catcher's keeping that right leg open and I can catch a sign and I see it's an off-speed pitch, that's when guys like me who didn't steal a lot of bases, that's when I can steal second base. That's yeah. maybe how I can relay a sign to my hitter if he wants the sign. And I hey, asked my – I asked – go ahead. Well, I was going to say, as you're saying that leading off first base, and I, I'm going to say this, and, and this may digress the podcast, and I'm not saying this for shock effect, but I'm sitting there on signal stealing. I'm sitting there watching the – it was the Indians back then. Indians-Astros in the playoffs. Okay, on the field, the first base field-level boxes at, at Progressive Field at, at uh, now Guardian Stadium. So if Now you Guardian, yourself, right, Guardian. So if you could put yourself down there, okay, right, right. field level next to the dugouts, right. okay? Okay, now the uh, – um, the Guardians are on the other side. The the Astros there. I'm in there with our group who has that box and some of the Astros front office and um and uh, uh, God, a couple of couple guys that you would know from Houston, okay, whose names go down in the annals of baseball history, okay. And I'm watching. I'm like, heck, I see you guys stealing signals, okay. The way that they had, okay, in the playoffs back then, uh, before that had come out, and how, and people would say, "Oh, you can't do that. It's so quick. Uh, you can't relay that information." But you could see the mechanics of cameras and and signals and and signs and how people pay attention to that and how that was done back then. And the back then, well. Here, here's my take on it. And I have a different take than most people about that whole Astros, uh, th- that whole situation. The game of baseball has always been about sign stealing. And what I was getting to last time was I would ask my dad about that as a catcher. And he said, my job as a catcher, if you're picking my signs, is be better at giving my signs. So if we're all aware of when we step onto that field, we are under surveillance 24 seven, get better at giving your signs. I was always watching because there were a lot of smart base runners that could depict signs and, and, and decipher what we were trying to do. And they'd relay them to the hitter. Now in my game, it's fair game until I, if I catch you though, there's going to be a price to be paid. It's an eye for an eye. And next time you might be wearing one in the neck and we're going to look at each other and go, all right, let's squash it. We're even move on from there. I wasn't very good at stealing sides, but if somebody, one of the guys on my team would give me a a tip on, Hey, if you get out second base, it's this, this, uh, and I could decide I would do it. 
Now, I was always worried about getting caught, and I don't think I ever did, but that was a part of our game. Bringing in electronics, uh, I don't feel very good about that. The earpieces, anything electronic in the ear, and that's never been proven by the that the Astros did that. The one thing I tell everybody, and, and I laugh when these supposed these experts on TV are breaking down, oh, the Astros are this and that. They have no clue what really goes on. One thing I know as a player, being on the bottom, you know, on and, and you do as an NFL player, there are things that only the players in that room, current rostered guys, know about. And what I found in my career was if something was going on in the game, cheating, whatever it may be. It was rarely, rarely just an isolated incident. It was widespread. So my point is when I hear these, these Dodger players say, Oh, we should, they should give us the trophy from 2017. I believe it was. I laugh. I'm like, wait a minute. You're telling me nobody on the Dodgers was doing anything. That's a bunch of BS. Oh, so, God. So I, I have so, a, you're so on point. I have such a different take than than all the other guys that, oh, the Houston Astros are these mean guys that stole our signs. I'm going, you think the Houston Astros were the only team stealing them? You're you're crazy. Everybody else. And the, the thing that bothers me is players on other teams that are well aware of what goes on in their clubhouse come out as the squeaky clean. Yeah, I can't believe they did that. I look at them like, are you serious? Yeah. Are you serious? Sure. You, you think you can bullshit me? <laughs> so anyway, I have a different yeah, no, take. No, it's, you're not right a pop- it's not you're a popular not- take. No, no. But that's hey, as players and stuff, that's absolutely true. You know. I mean, you know, other teams are doing it. Everybody, everybody's debating us. Yes, Cor- correct. And, and, and some people, some teams are better. Days. I can't say that about today. No, and some teams are better at it. And all of a sudden, you bit, you win a World Series. That spotlight's going to be on you. You know, so so I don't know. It is what it is. Uh, but my point, all this, that, and that's great stuff right there. But what I wanted to get to is the earpiece and the headset for the NFL. I think you were on the ground floor of that. You were one of the first, if not the first, to do it when you were the back up to Marino in, in Miami. Were you were you the first one to give be given the signals on the mic? Wow, Brock. So I was I was actually chuckling at, at, at how um the surveillance question and that um, and how teams to other teams are doing it too. And you're right. If you're the Super Bowl team or the, um, the world series winning team, the spotlight's on you, but you ain't the only team doing it. You may be one of the teams doing it best and other teams may be jealous that you, they, that you're doing it better than them. Um, you know, from, from, from that perspective of it. Did you do in the NFL before they went? It used to be just signs. Then they went to the the headset, right? Where you yeah. where they had a mic. Yeah. So, but as you're, but uh, and again, I it, to to that is one. Thank you for uh, showing your age and, and bringing that up. And um, and actually, when I, I was with Todd the other day down with Dolphin Camp, and I and I said this in in confidence. And I should probably say this more. I'm glad you kind of asked this, and it's it's kicking into my my CTE head right now. Is um, um, what an honor! It was the first year that the headsets, the microphones, were in from the coach to 
the the quarterback and, and uh, from that. So when I was actually playing, that was hard for me to get used to because I'm from the old school. I was a quarterback who basically called my own plays. And with the concussion issues, I really don't like stuff going on in my head. So I didn't really want that from a playing standpoint. Um, um, and that was that first year. But now it's towards the end of my career. Um, my health and my body uh, is starting to deteriorate. I'm not at the level of quarterback um, that I was when I was younger. Oh, and by the way, the great Dan Marino is the quarterback for the Dolphins, and the great Don Shula is the head coach for the Miami Dolphins, too. So I'm the backup quarterback. Typically, the coaches are on the uh, the microphone to the, co- uh, to the quarterback. And I, I don't tell – I haven't told this story too much because I ultimately so believe and love respect. And there's a, a respect in, um, that you and me have as older school players – that we have for the players that are in front of us and for our coaches that were in front of us. And you being a third generation player, you, you probably know that as good, if not better than me and stuff. So coach Shula, who, who I'm actually getting teared up a little bit thinking about this now, you know, ha, you know, we're, as we're getting older, heck I'm getting older. The CTE stuff is a little real. We're not on seven second delay. Um, now, but sometimes you can't get a thought from your head to your mouth. And it's okay. One thing, man, cool, Brett, me and your buddies, we're friends. We're just talking here. You can edit it out. It's just a podcast. Okay. So be it. Okay. But one o'clock on Sunday afternoon, or actually worse, one o'clock game, and it's five minutes to four. Okay. And the game's almost over and you're the coach calling plays. You can't have some of them slip-ups. I've had some older coaches, okay, at times on the sidelines, just like if I was on the sidelines right now, okay? Could I come up perfectly within a split second, the decision-making that I need to make to come up with that adjustment to an adjustment that the other coach made to come up with that perfect play in 1.7 seconds and execute it like you need to on a three-step drop? I'd be challenged to do that on a consistent basis now. But in my youth, I was good at that. And for Coach Shula, at the beginning of a new toy like that, to be able to trust a player, not even a coach, to trust me to be the guy to make those decisions, but yet make it look like the coaches are making those decisions, and then be able to talk to the great Dan Marino. And then, because I'm not really as athletic as most of the uh, you you good athletes and stuff, I had to kind of get into my career by using my brain. And it, it sucks now that it's, it's concussed and damaged. But back then, it wasn't as concussed and damaged. So I, would, I wouldn't waste plays. So I came up with some kind of creative, off-the-cuff off type plays. And I was, I was me and Gary Danielson were the innovators of the spike clock play um, back in the mid-'80s. And... Um, with Coach Shula having that trust and respect in me, I was able to implement that play. And because he really trusted me to do the play calling too, I was able to implement and call plays. And I actually was one of probably the first one of the first players on the sideline to call plays to the great Dan Marino. Because Coach Shula, God bless, I love you so much, trusted me to take care of things for him. 
Well, I think and it was I, awesome because Coach Shula got him really getting teared up because uh, Howard Snellenberger used to tell me, God bless him, too. I go, what's the, he goes, he's going, you know what the number one job of a quarterback is? The number one rule besides winning? He goes, you're an eraser. You're going to erase all my, all our coaches' mistakes and make it look like we're perfect. And that mindset's ingrained in me that I want to erase problems and make them look like they weren't problems. And guys I love and respect like that, you know, they trusted me and I went to the math for them. Well, I think it's a tribute to you. And, and like you mentioned, the great Don Shula, great Dan Marino, uh, to entrust you with that, I think says it all right there on, on what they thought of Bernie Kosar at that particular time in your career. Uh, Bernie, this was awesome, man. I appreciate you coming on the boom podcast. A lot of fun. Uh, 2001 Cleveland Browns legend. You were inducted there. Uh, a great career. Uh, 23, over 23,000 yards. Uh, 124 TDs, 1994 completions. You played 12 years, and uh, this was a lot of fun. It was cool for me to hear that side. You know, I love having baseball players on, but when it, whenever I get outside the box, get to have a, a an NFL player or, or an NBA guy or an MMA fighter, I love it. It gets me outside my comfort zone, but it's a lot of fun, and I – I think sports at the highest level, uh, we can learn from each other because there's a lot of things we yeah. have in common that transfer from sport to sport to sport. But it's really here. Cool here in your story, all the good you're doing uh, for all you guys out there. It is. Hey, uh, hey, Brett, as you say that, as you're saying that, you know, as we go from sport to sport and this may be a little bit of a plug and stuff, but. Feel free. I'm this technology stuff and some of the stuff that we go as players, I originally was doing a lot of my health and wellness journey for myself and for some of us ex-players. So whether it's football or baseball, you know, some of us ex-guys are going through um, a lot of the uh, similar issues. And especially when it comes to health, wellness, getting off of pharma, getting away from some of the medications and stuff. How do we um, have a healthier, longer lifestyle in that? I've also started raising a lot of money for a lot of us ex-players and for people who can't really afford to get you baseball guys have done a way massively better job with your retirements and your union in terms of taking care of your own. We have done a horrible job in the NFL and with our ex-players and taking care of guys our age and stuff. And then guys, when they first come out so that they could make it to my age, um, I started this journey um, with uh, the great Junior Seau and Dave Durison, who have gone through um, and unfortunately uh, committed suicide and saved their brains for research and stuff. I've, I'm keeping, I've kept up with some of the research to and raising money for some of the things for guys so they don't have to go down that path and for teaching youth um, some ways to um, have a to not have those dark type decades that some of us have had. So I'm um, look for me on social media and some of the stuff I'm going to try to promote with it. Anybody out there, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm, I'm trying to learn this uh, subscription, super Twitter followers, the money I'm going to get on there for you guys following me. I'm going to help put back into helping guys like us be able to, um, you know, get healthy and, and continue a lifestyle that, um, 
um, and, and a life that's being able to be productive out there because so many of us aren't able now to really cope it, uh, mentally and or physically. So God bless you, brother. I enjoyed being with you today. So, so Bernie, is the best way for the, for those of you out there listening to the Boom podcast, uh, if you're interested in what Bernie was talking about and contributing, is the best way to reach out to you on your social media? Yeah, I'm at uh, Bernie Kosar QB on Twitter. Very cool. Go check him out. And uh, the great Bernie Coase are a lot of fun. Interesting. I'm, I'm glad to see all the good you're doing in life. And, and you know, that followed by uh, obviously a, a great, great NFL career. As we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.